those are um, those aren't easy lyrics to sing sometimes recognizing the truth that God is over all things because you know that sometimes him being in charge of your life entirely um, he walks you through things that are not pleasing and uh, but I'll tell you what over the course of my life I have realized it is absolutely imperative to lay down your own personal will before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and let him have control uh, because his promise will always remain true that he's going to get his good, he's going to get his pleasure through you and your life. And so let's enter into this now. We're into a series now called Real Gospel, Real Joy. And this is where that came from. Um, If you remember, we just want to remind you Uh, how we came to the book of Philippians as the staff and elders had met together as we meet together, asking the big question, what does our church really need? Where are they at? What are the prayer requests we're seeing? Um, Everything pointed to our church um, in varying degrees was dealing with anxiety. And we thought, as, as, as the word anxiety dropped on the table, we said, how can we address that then with the Word of God? And uh, Charles threw out the, the book Philippians. It's the most joyful book of the Bible. And he said, let's tear into it. Let's spend, spend the next nine months together looking at the Apostle Paul and the letter he had written and sent to the church of Philippi and was intended to be a complete encouragement to them. And so that's how we ended up where we are um, today, well, starting in September, and why we're still there today. So the book of Philippians, Paul wrote this letter to, um, to the church in Philippi to be an encouragement to them, and we come to a passage today, today that talks about God, God's pleasure. And so before we look at what brings God pleasure, I want to ask you that question, what is it in your life that brings you pleasure? So I don't, know if a, I don't know if a plate of food, as I say, what brings you pleasure? I don't know if a plate of food comes to your mind as you see a 24-ounce steak cooked just the way you like it with a stuffed baked potato on the side. I don't know if that's what it is for you. It would be for me, except probably not 24 ounces. I don't really think I'm man enough to receive that much meat in one sitting. That would be three meals. Maybe for you, it's curling up on the corner of your couch next to the fire with a good book for the next two hours of nothing but reading and being warm. Here's what brings me joy. Here's what brings me pleasure. When all the leaves, I live in the woods, when all the leaves on all of the trees fall at one time, and it doesn't snow until Christmas, So you know that I have not been pleased with this fall because the leaves fall a little bit and then it snows a bunch and then the leaves fall again. That's not pleasing to me. Maybe, men, it's pleasing for you. And I love this one. It is a place where the mind just goes clear. It's early in the morning. You're 10, 15 feet off the ground sitting in a tree stand. The ground is crisp. You can hear everything. Sun is coming up to your back. The wind is in your favor. And you just sit there and you wait. That brings me pleasure. That brings me great pleasure. What is it that brings you pleasure? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a guy's name. This guy's name is Alex Honnold. His name is spelled H-O-N-N-A-L-D. 
I am not pronouncing Arnold like I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is his last name, Arnold, or excuse me, Alex Honnold. We're going to talk for a moment about what brings him pleasure. Look at this mountain. That's El Cap or El Capitan, which is in Yosemite. It is a three, if you're not aware of this, it is a 3,000 vertical granite face. It's 100% granite. Now, I want to ask you a question. Would it bring you pleasure to climb that with ropes? 3,000 feet. Now, if you know granite, over time, with wear and weather, it becomes smoother and smoother. This guy, Alex Honnold, decided that he would climb it without ropes because it had no longer become a pleasure to him to climb it with ropes. So time after time after time, he climbed it with ropes again and again and again, learning every detail of the course that he was about to take because he was going to climb it without ropes. He started the first time. He got 500 or so feet up and decided, I can't do this. Comes back down. It was the fall of the year. He decides next spring, I'm going to do it. So he does it. To give you perspective, he's probably 1,200 feet up there, and he's not even halfway. There was one, there are three sections that were extremely difficult. And when I say he had, he has places to grab onto that it seems as though it was just his fingernails. And not even the tips of his feet were, were his holding places. There was one particular move that was called, he had fallen almost every time trying this one. It was called the karate. He's, he's holding with two or three fingers, and he has to step and reach as far as he can reach to get his foot on an outcropping of the rock. To get his foot over there. He's fallen multiple times trying this, and now he's trying it without ropes. He does it. And he looks at the camera that is filming him with like celebration like you and I would if we threw an egg up in the air and caught it in our hat. He finishes the climb. Of course, they would not have done free solo. I recommend you watch it. He would not have, he would not have, he would not have tried that if it didn't bring him joy, if it didn't, he didn't find pleasure in it. He gets to the top and he sits down and he starts talking through with the camera crew. And I believe he used the word that pleased me. There wasn't this jumping up and down celebration that he had just risked his life for three hours and 46 minutes. The slightest misstep or wrong placement of his fingers means his life is over. And he looks at the camera in this one section, and he's like, hey, wasn't that awesome? How would you feel in that moment? I can tell you right now that doesn't bring me pleasure. Let's talk about anxiety. That brings me anxiety. Even to think about doing something like that, the karate kick move, 30 feet off the ground. That brings me anxiety. It brings this guy pleasure. Let's get a little more serious. Let me share something else that brings me immense pleasure. In 3 John, John says this of his children, there is nothing brings him greater pleasure 
than to know his children are walking in the truth. What an amazing, amazing pleasure that is. To know that your kids are claimed by God, they're in his kingdom with the gate slammed shut behind them to be forever and ever with Jesus from now until forevermore. What brings you pleasure? Let's ask this question now. What do you think it is that brings God pleasure? What brings God pleasure? Well, let me give you two. Let me share with you two things that brings God pleasure. Number one is this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says this, that God desires that all would be saved, that all would be saved, and that none would be lost. That everyone would come to the knowledge of the truth and accept the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for them. That brings, that brings God pleasure when sinners repent. Here's another one. When his children live in obedience. You know this one, parents. John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23 say this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. The one who has his commandments and keeps them and lives them, that's the one that God loves. That brings him pleasure. When sinners repent and when our children, when his children live in obedience. You know that. You know it. When your children come to you, parents, and they lay before you, even without your prompting, their confession saying, I did this wrong. Seeking your forgiveness. Ah, isn't that a tremendous pleasure when your children do that? When your children live in obedience and they do the things they're supposed to do without even being asked. Now think in terms of try and measure your pleasure with your children as they live in obedience in comparison to God with you. It brings God pleasure when sinners repent. It brings Him pleasure when His children live in obedience. Now here's a, here's a, here's a, te- a question that will test you to the core. What is more important to you? You need to be straight up honest with yourself. What is more important to you? That you are pleased with your life? Or that God is pleased with your life? What's more important? And that's a hard one to be truthful with. I know we can speak the words. We know the truth. It is definitely more important that God is pleased with my life. But how does your life reflect that truth? What if the road God has for you, a road of good works that He has prepared for you, doesn't look good to you? Ephesians 2, we forget about verse 10 because we love that we've been saved by grace through faith. But Ephesians 3.10 says this, 2.10, The weir is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. So what if the steps that he has ordained for you to take aren't pleasing to you, but they're pleasing to him? What are you tempted to do? I know what I'm tempted to do. I'm going to sidestep it. 
If it's in my, if the Lord permits, I'm going to sidestep it. What about you? Spurgeon got this. Look at this quote by Spurgeon. I'm afraid that all of the grace that I have got in, of my comfortable, easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. So pause for a minute. All of the good that he's experienced in life would lie on a penny. Now, we here in the West, we know that we have an abundance of comfort and pleasure at our fingertips at every moment of every day. And Spurgeon says, those things I can mound up on on a penny. But then he says, but the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Ha, that we could have that same mindset and see the blessed goodness and pleasure in the things the Lord has for us that adjust us and turn us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. How about, now listen. Rehearse your life in about five seconds. Now, what is it about you that is pleasing to God? What is it about you that is is pleasing to God. I'll tell you what. There are Sundays where I stand here in worship with my arms raised to my Savior Jesus Christ, and all I see is the dirt, the sin, on the palms of my hand that makes me want to do nothing but curl up and say, Lord, I am not worthy to even utter your name. It's hard, isn't it? the good that He brings into our lives that He considers to be good, that brings Him pleasure, is the very thing that sanctifies us, that He uses to wipe our hands clean. Here's the big idea, church, for today. All right? So if you're wondering right now, is the Lord ever even pleased with me, His child? This is a promise to you. This is the big idea. If you are a child of God, today's passage says this, that He is getting His good pleasure from you. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose and for His pleasure. That's what today's message is. If you don't walk away with anything else, know this. When and if you are a child of God, He is always going to get His good pleasure from you. That's hard for a lot of us to receive, isn't it? And I'm one of them. When I review my life, there is more to be ashamed of than not. Praise be to Jesus. Praise be to Jesus that the moment a person bows his knee, bends his knee to him, and receives the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us on the cross, purchasing our way into everlasting relationship with him, it's at that moment he pours his Holy Spirit into us, and he is then in a process with us, always pleased, bending our will to his. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, 
I am so very thankful for your word that is inerrant, that we can trust in. I'm so thankful, Lord, for the words that you have for us today. I pray, Lord, that each one, each one would walk out of here confident in knowing that you are pleased with them because they are your children. I pray that today would be another step of you working out our salvation in us with fear and trembling. That we would remember it is you working in us, willing and working in us for your good pleasure. Be pleased with us today, Lord. Stand between myself and the church. Declare your truth. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, if you're not there already, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And someone said, wow, that's going to be, I don't know who I was talking to, but they said, wow, this is going to be a short one today. Two verses. I don't know that it's going to be short today, but we're about to see what the Lord's going to do, all right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and this is what it says. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's Him working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so we need to address attention. Attention that goes back 2,000 plus years. And there are theologians that have wrestled over this and wrestled over this and wrestled over this that will be able to much more eloquently express where man's responsibility where his work intersects with God's sovereign will over the life of an individual? I don't have that answer. I'm going to trust that the, that the Holy Spirit of God will deliver through me the message he has for you regarding how we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And where that intersects with God saying, but it is me that works in you, both to will and to work according to my good pleasure. I almost want to share those two verses at the same time, because they are so intermingled together. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, referred to it earlier, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but it is a gift. This is the way it was explained to me as a kid. God has this gift that he's holding out for you. And this is, where, this is where God's sovereign plan for your salvation intersects um, your work in it. So now you must only reach out and receive it. Well, that falls short. Because it's not an act of grace then, it's an act of the will of man that he would come into relationship with Jesus. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. I couldn't accept that I, that for me to even say, I reached out and took it. While my heart wanted that to be true, I couldn't believe that that was the truth because it is by grace I am saved through the gift. Here's why it was so hard for me. I don't know if this is a challenge for you. I, have, I express that I am a true son of Adam and I am a true son of Eve. Why? Because I want to have something to say. I want to know the difference between good and evil, and I want to be able to decide for myself what is good and what is evil. 
I feel better knowing that as the rope of salvation swings past me, I can jump and grab it and ride it right into heaven. It has something to do with me. But here's what I know. I am going to miss the rope of salvation if it's left up to me. It's a huge struggle for me. Expressing that I trust only in my own decision. Here's what we can count on, folks. Here's what I can count on. As I look through my life and I measure what I can ultimately be, ultimately be responsible for, and this is true for you too, there is nothing good I can claim. Scripture speaks to it, and my past bears testimony to it. Jeremiah 17, 9, verses 9 and 10 say this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That is our hearts, church. Desperately sick. Who can understand? The Lord says, it is I who search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his way and the fruit of his deeds. What can I own? That I am under sin. I was born under sin. And apart from Jesus Christ, no one is righteous, no, not one. Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Romans 3, verses 9 through 11. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and this is it. No one seeks after God. So as the rope of salvation swings past, we should thank the Lord Jesus that he wraps us up in it and takes us into eternity with him. This is a mystery for us. There is a tension that I still today, at my age, experience when I think about what am I responsible for and what is God responsible for as it relates to my own personal growth in relationship with Him. Well, while it's a tension for us, it is not a tension for God. And so this is a challenge today that we, knowing what He is responsible for, that we would release that to him and that we would trust him in that whole process of him getting his good pleasure out of us. So here's the entirety of the message today. God, if you are a child of God, he is going to get his good pleasure from you. He's going to get his good pleasure from you as he walks with you and works with you. As he takes your will and transforms it to his. As he works in you to act like Jesus Christ act. He is going to get his good pleasure in you. That's the fullness of the message today. And so I'm hopeful that that's what you walk away with. So let's break down the passage now. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but also in my weakness work out, or I'm sorry, presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the first one. God's going to get his good pleasure. God gets his good pleasure as our lives proclaim our salvation. First word, first word that he uses in verse 12 says, therefore. So in other words, it means since. Since. What he's about to share with us is dependent on the expression of the obedience of Jesus Christ that you see in the verses just before it, 7 to 11. Jesus Christ emptied himself, 
He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to obedience, to obedience to God the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what he's about to share with us, after the therefore, is completely dependent on remembering our motivation. It's that Jesus Christ was the first one to express that kind of obedience to God the Father as he laid himself down. He humbled himself and he said, All right, Father, your way and not my own. Therefore, and then he says, My beloved. I love that. I absolutely love that. And as I read my beloved, it makes me wonder, all right, why did Paul drop that in here again? You remember chapter 1? He says this to the Philippian church, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. The Philippian church was beloved to Paul. He, they were beloved to him because of their partnership in the gospel. You know what it's like to be told you're loved? We say it to you after every Sunday morning. You are loved. But now think about, think about a spiritual mentor in your life, a spiritual advisor in your life. What is it like when they say, I love you? I saw Pat Jones. Pat Jones is a big deal to me. He was the pastor of the church that uh, I attended back home in Pennsylvania. I hadn't seen him for years. And then, and then a year ago last month, I saw him for the first time in, in a long time, 10 years. What a joy it was to see him. And to hear the words from him, I love you, ah, the encouragement that is to me to receive that from him. To hear the words from him, I love you. Who in your life, what spiritual mentor, whether it's your father or mother or someone else in your life, think through what it means to hear those words. Paul says it to them. He says, beloved, and they're beloved because of their partnership in the gospel. Real gospel, church, real gospel, partnership in the gospel brings real joy because you are beloved by Jesus and you are beloved by your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, he says it because he knows the next verses are so, so difficult. We belong to Jesus and we belong to each other. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Parents, you know that. Hey, actually, you know that because you were once a child in your own home. When the parent says, hey, we're going out for the night and you're left at home alone, when is it easier to obey? When mom and dad are watching or when they're not watching? It's easier to obey when they're watching. And Paul says, hey, when I was with you, your obedience was spectacular. And I want you even more so now that I'm not there to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, he knows this. He knows that their obedience wasn't perfect. 
But one thing he knew about them, their expression of obedience said, said when they failed, they picked themselves up and they got right back after it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, let's obey more. That obey word that Paul uses is intended to connect them back to the verses just before it where to remind them, hey, this is your motivation. God the Father obeyed, or excuse me, Jesus obeyed God the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so therefore, you must obey. Obey has become a dirty word in the life of the church. Everyone wants to be told, you are saved by grace. And this is what I see when people respond um, to that word obey. And we're about to hear, work out your own salvation. Here's what they want to do. They want to sit at the foot of the cross and embrace the grace of Jesus Christ and revel and rest in the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ and wait for his to return. That's not obedience. This is obedience. That we revel and we rest in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that was extended to us at the cross. We revel in that. We rest in that. And then we take up the cross of Jesus Christ, the, te- the cross that he has given to us. Romans 12, 2. We take it up and we move on and we get after it. We bear the cross that he has given us. We follow Jesus into everything that he has given us. That is obedience. That's where God gets his good pleasure. Therefore, take up your cross daily and follow him. Obedience is not a dirty word. Obedience is a beautiful word. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed, Continue in your obedience. And now, work out your own salvation. Remember, God gets his good pleasure as our lives proclaim our salvation. Work out your own salvation. This is not what work out means. It doesn't mean that you earn your salvation. All the work for your salvation, your entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, was done at the cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, And then God the Father highly exalted him. Jesus Christ died, and he, excuse me, is now risen again, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, and he's speaking on your behalf. We don't work for that. Here's what it means. This is what it really means. Work out means work at. It means to bring forth. It means to express your salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, that we are to be his ambassador, the ambassador of Jesus Christ, someone that reflects the person of Jesus Christ. This is what obedience is. This is what it means to work out your salvation. Here's what it means. Again, act like you belong to Jesus. This is our active participation with the Holy Spirit of God putting forth effort to become more like Him. Work out our own salvation. What is our salvation? Well, when Paul uses the word salvation here, he's talking about salvation past, 
Salvation present and salvation future. Salvation past has been taken care of. That's your salvation that was given to you. It was made possible to you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So work it out. Believe in it. Accept it. Let's jump to salvation future. Salvation future is this. It's having this glorious hope that grows inside of you that one day you're going to see the face of Jesus across the finish line. And you're going to enter into eternity with him to shed this nasty flesh that just wants to drag you down all the time. That's salvation future. Salvation fast, cross, past, cross. Salvation future, eternity with Jesus, shed of this, shedding this flesh. But salvation present is this. This is you going to war with your sin. This means you are taking your sin to battle. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 20. I want you right now, if you're working out your salvation, you're doing it with fear and trembling. And if you need some help deciding or determining what your sin is that you go to, Galatians 5, 16 to 21 provides you with a pretty um, comprehensive list, although, although it's not. Um, so let's read it together. 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now these, church, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And things like these. So look at that list. Are there any that are jumping off the page at you right now saying, hey, this is you. This is, this is how you satisfy the flesh. This is where you go for it. You're one that's given to sensuality. You're one that's given to sexual immorality. You know what? You love the experience of a fit of rage. And it goes on to say things like these. Maybe yours isn't listed there. But you know what it is right now as the Holy Spirit of God starts leaning on you because He wants to get His good pleasure out of you. He wants you to have that sin eradicated from your life. You go to war with your sin. Hebrews 12 says that you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. If you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, whatever that sin is, you haven't gone to war with it. Paul is saying, take it to task. Take it to the mat. Take it to the battlefield and and defeat it. You fight against it. Paul knew the obedience of the Philippian church wasn't perfect. But this is what he meant right here. He meant when your sin knocks you down, you fall down and you go to Jesus on your knees and you repent. You lay it at his feet and say, this is beating me again. 
please forgive me. And you get back up by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and you get moving again and you engage in the battle another time and another time and another time. This is when you lose the battle. When you decide it's not worth it anymore and it feels better to engage in that sinful act than it is to fight against it, I surrender to my flesh. I'm going to give in to it. That's when you've lost. That's when your obedience is put under your feet And that's where working out your salvation, your salvation, salvation from the sin that clings so closely to you, should be done with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, which is the transition to the next portion of the passage, verse 13. Why fear and tremble if I'm already saved? That's a really good question. Why should I fear and tremble if I'm already in the eternal kingdom? Here's why. Because the almighty creator God, the one who formed the entire world and the entire universe, the one that has given life to mankind, this one who is holy and without sin and is righteous and pure in everything he does, he says to you, I am holy, and so since I am holy, I ask you to be holy. And so if you are a child of God, and you are failing in your battle against sin, what he's saying to you is, the moment you give up, you should fear and tremble, because the holiness of God exists inside of you by the Holy Spirit of the Holy God. And he will not let it persist, because that does not bring him good pleasure. And so he finds his good pleasure as he starts to bend your will against that sin to match his own. And that brings us to our next point. Fear and trembling. Not fearful that you're going to lose your salvation, because once you are in, you are already in. But fearful because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and will not let your sin persist. He's going to get his good pleasure out of you, even if it means walking you through some really unpleasant things to you. God gets his good pleasure as our lives proclaim our salvation, looking more like Jesus, and then number two, as he bends our will to match his. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this one. Let's talk about work first. God works in you both to work. That, that is our, that's God working together with our effort to fight against anger. You know what? I said to the staff the other day, I've gotten to a place where I think I can, out, I can control my anger that I can, I can control the outward response to that in, in, inward angry feeling. They laughed at me. They were like, you mean when you bite your lip or you purse your lips? Or you look this way or you, look, you can't look us in the eye? That's the outward response. That's the work. When I am able to finally get to the place where I can control the outward response to the inward feeling, that is the work. 
work. God, work in me so that my sinful responses don't impact the body. They don't have any influence on the body. Help me to control that. And so he does over time, time and again, time and again, time and again. Knock down, get up, hurt people. Knock down, get up, hurt people. Repent, confess, Lord, help me. To the point where whatever I'm feeling inside, I'm not expressing because I know it's hurtful. That's work. God, work in me both to work so I don't hurt people. Now, here's the will part. This is where verses 12 and 13 are mingled so closely together because you can't do verse 12 without verse 13. I promise you that. It requires the Holy Spirit of God in you. God works in us both to will. While you, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, are able to control your responses... You will never, ever, ever on your own be able to change how you feel when something makes you angry. You can't do it. That's why, God, please get your good pleasure out of me. Work in me to change my will. When that, when that thing that provokes me to anger and provokes me to wrath happens, I don't want to even feel angry. That is a changing of my will that is entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit of God so that my actions actually match the way I feel inside. Sometimes it takes drastic measures. Have you ever heard that you can actually bite your finger off? Or you can't actually bite your finger off, but to bite your finger off is something like biting a carrot in half. You ever heard that? I've heard that. So I, I thought I'd try and do a little research. They, they talk about how you can't bite through bone, how you can't, like, the, the tendons and the, the flesh and all that. You can't do it. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you have the will to bite your finger off? That's drastic. They don't know because no one has ever bitten their finger off, I'm supposing. And if somebody has bitten their finger off, they're not in their right mind, so it doesn't count for those who are in their right mind. But now let's get spiritual and personal. Bite your finger off, great. But Jesus says this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He doesn't say, ask someone else to gouge it out. He says, gouge out your eye. Who can do that? And then he goes on to say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. They are drastic measures that Jesus is saying must be taken. But he's given us drastic measures that we can't do apart from the Holy Spirit of God in us. You've also heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that the one who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done it. I can walk all day long and not, have, not commit adultery, but can I walk all day long and never have a lustful thought? Drastic measures can change that I'm not going to have adultery. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit in me. By the drastic nature of Him inside of me, a holy God versus my sinful flesh, He's the only one capable 
of breaking that desire in my heart and in my soul. So, I laid that all out just now. I pray it's been by the power and the might of the Holy Spirit in me at work with the Word of God. And I still want you to walk away with it. It's scary. It's really scary to think, oh my goodness, I should fear and tremble. I should fear and tremble because the Holy Spirit of God is inside of me. And when I don't act in accordance with the way He wants me to, things are going to get dicey. But this is the real truth, church. If you are a child of God, He is pleased with you, and He will get His pleasure with you. He is so patient, so slow to anger, abounding in such incredible loving kindness, that His pleasure will be gotten as He works with you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. George Miller lived in the early 1800s, the quote up there, yeah. Lived in the early 1800s. He was a Christian evangelist responsible for orphanages that cared for over 10,000 children while providing Christian education to over 120,000. And this is what he says. Though I am weak, and that's what we are, and though I am erring on many points, and we are, God will bless me as long as he shall enable me to act according to His will in this matter. What is the matter in your life that God needs to enable you to act in accordance with His will? Maybe it's listed in Galatians chapter 5, and maybe it's not. But what is it? What is the Holy Spirit of God telling you right now? That it is. God is getting his pleasure from you. Remember, you are beloved in the eyes of the Lord. You are beloved in your church. God gets his pleasure from you as your life more and more proclaims your salvation, the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. As you were were John the Baptist saying, now that Christ is on the scene, he must increase and I must decrease. God gets his good pleasure as he bends your will to match his. Proverbs 21.33 says this. It says, get the horses ready, but trust in God. There is nothing wrong with the effort put forth, but our trust should always be in God. Let me very carefully say it this way. You work with all your might as though your salvation depends on it, but trust in God because it doesn't. You work with all your might as though your salvation depends on it. But trust in God because it doesn't. Hey, last week, Jasper talked about this process that we're all in together and how it, is, how it is, drives us together with unity. Every analogy breaks down at some point, and so I want to share one with you in regard to this passage and, and, as, and as it relates to unity. We're all supposed to do this in, context, in the context of the church. We are. So imagine it this way. You sense and you know the move of the Holy Spirit of God is going this way. And look at it like a river, okay? 
There are so many in your life right now in the church that are out in the middle of the river. They have felt the current of the Holy Spirit of God, and they're saying, this is the way we're going. You don't know where the river is leading. You don't know what's around the next bend. It could be rapids. It could be simple rippling before whitewater. It could be a waterfall. It could be a tree falling down that threatens to push you under. But we're all in it together. And we're in it with the Holy Spirit of God because he's made the promise that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. And so here we are. We're in the river. We have decided we feel the current and the flow of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's that we would together be working out our salvation with fear and trembling in partnership with the Holy Spirit of God in us. Some of you are standing ankle deep because you're so afraid of what's coming next. You're so afraid to even get involved with the pushing and the elbows and the things that happen when you're in relationship with others. And God is saying, hey, come on out. Just keep your head above water. That's all I'm asking. Some of you are knee deep. And you're starting to feel it more and more, but you're still not in complete submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, know this. As you submit to the will of God the Father, He is going to bring you through the most... Hey, the water's great out here. Come on in. It is wonderful. It's actually fun. Come on out. It's fun. Bathing in the Holy Spirit as he carries us along and then we come to some bumps along the, well, rapids along the way. Here's my admonition to you. You know where the Holy Spirit of God is leading you right now. And I'm asking you to be in submission to that and let him will and work to change you according to his good plan so that you would take on the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you right now. So, so, so thankful that you do not leave us to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you've given us a family, a fellowship of believers that love us too. I pray that we together as we, as we are swept along by your Spirit, that we together with one mouth would declare the glory of the Lord as you transform us into your likeness. Oh God, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.